In the free episode, you will have heard us talking about film in 2022, and this is us talking about film in 2023. So there's there's our our kind of uh, our roundup of of 2022 uh, best best and worst films. Um, um, Marin, you mentioned this this before your your chapter in the Conformist Rebellion collection. I just wanted to like to give you a chance to to repeat um, your thesis from from that from that chapter and to see how it's, you know, how it stands up today. And, you know, maybe if things are developing in, in that way, but just to, in, just to kind of frame this a little bit for listeners who haven't um, read this collection. Um, we had an episode on this with um, Elena Langer and uh, Joshua uh, Pickett de Paulus as well. Um, and it's a collection of kind of Marxist critiques of the left and Marin, I won't kind of <laughs> explain what your chapter is about, but um, you know, I should declare an interest as well. Cause I had a, had a chapter in it so i'm obviously going to say it was a a collection of you know great contributors and and perfect um essays but yeah so the basic idea about the centrality of representation to film criticism today what was the case that you made in in that chapter and do you think you've been vindicated by 2022 um, uh, filmic output such as it is yeah i think so. sorry film criticism such as it is so, yes i think so because we that's why we had to then do part, uh, um, performance anxiety podcast um, because I, I think I wanted to write about the kind of how this new woke aesthetic which you already said is definitely a thing and how this can becomes a kind of really good expression of this, the post-political you know the, the, the foreclosure of politics in the post-political is very 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 similar to the foreclosure of understanding art for art's sake so what we are foreclosed is to understand art in, for its own purpose as a uh, in its own terms but we are forced to see it through these kind of neoliberal um uh, ethnic lenses of wokeness ethnic lenses uh, yeah it's just weird well, through the kind of identitarian, yeah. through the identitarian um, tropes, for want of a better word. So the kind of deadlock that, that people have of trying to read film or understand or enjoy film and art in, 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 the greater, in the greater scheme of things and how they are not allowed to do this. They have to always see it through these kind of prisms of identity politics, you know, who is cast, who is not cast who's represented, who's not represented. Um, and I wanted to say, no, no, first we need to go back to what the actual thing is in itself. In the same way we have to, if we want to change something, we have to go to politics as such. And that is sort of that in a nutshell. So I'm talking a lot about how the kind of cultural language of uh, this has become all about representation who is represented how and what and the kind of how theory is obsessed with representation how representation becomes a kind of metaphor and a solution for all things and it really misunderstands the idea of representation and performance so performance is of course representation 
Yeah, there's no doubt about it. But there's so much more to how representation works on screen that it, you know, this kind of identitarian readings of representations miss out on actual, yeah, the actual art. Well, correct me if I'm yeah. Um, but what tends to be collapsed is the idea of political representation and artistic representation, which is unfortunate. Um, so political representation means something entirely, or used to mean something entirely different. And this relates to the idea of the essence of the thing being emptied out. So, you know, artistic production, consumption, criticism is just being drained of any inherent, you know, anything inherent into itself and being replaced with this and being burned with these functions that they can't carry, right? Is that Yeah. So, so you know, you all art now has to be yeah functioning in this political way, and it can't do this, and everybody's going to be disappointed, and nobody enjoys art anymore, and people rebel against this kind of imposition on their enjoyment of art and being called racist and uh, backwards by while when they yeah. are doing so. So, I'm, I guess my you know the second part of the question is: Do you think this? thesis has been vindicated by by like by 2022 i guess one thing which i'm thinking about maybe reading too much into it was the lord of the rings rings of power series which you know technically not filmed so i don't know if we're allowed to discuss it but i guess (laughs) since i'm sharing it i will allow myself to make this point um the whole thing seemed to be like in the way that it was being kind of discussed before it came out and i should say i only saw the first episode because i thought it was really shit um it was all about, you know, representation, casting. Like it seemed though it was almost part of the marketing of it to be like, here's this battle. Like this is a political battleground over the kind of, are you allowed to kind of cast these people in these roles and these people in these roles and this and that. And, you know, it seemed like it was almost a confected outrage to kind of try and sell the this subs- kind of standard product or even more to insulate it from criticism on on artistic grounds like this is bad storytelling well you just don't like it because you're racist because you know we've cast um you know this is the way that, that the actors look in this in this production so yeah i mean i don't want to that's that's my take on it would you agree with this or is it has that kind of high point of art criticism in representative terms kind of been reached and are we now moving back to like aesthetic art uh, aesthetic film criticism, if you want to put it that way. I don't know if we're moving back to it, but I think there has been a kind of surprise maybe amongst Hollywood that Maverick did so well and it is deliberately not woke. And the idea that, that you know, the idea of, you know, go woke, go broke, it, there is something to this. And I think this is making uh, headway in production companies. What is of course lacking is the institutions which are infiltrated by you know the PMC um, who are have got nothing but this agenda than to push a kind of um, yeah representation ideology through through all the institutions. So what we're having now is maybe maybe there's a there's a turning point I don't know, but what we have at the moment is that. In the, in the institutions thoroughly ensconced are people who are producing, marketing, commissioning programs, TV shows and films that are thoroughly convinced by the idea of, you know, correct representation as a 
you know, as a legitimate artistic output. As an end in its own right, almost. Yeah, that's that's their that's their end goal. Yeah. They don't want to do good films. They just want to do this. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think. Sorry. Yeah. Specifically on the Lord of the Ring one, Rings one, that's quite interesting because in a fantasy genre, who's to say you can cast whoever you want, right? And that's one of the gifts I think that you know fantasy genres are, are given is you can uh, you can put whoever you want in there. Uh, well, I, do you know what? I actually saw the whole of the Lord of the Rings thing in the jig. Right. It wasn't good. I give you that. But well, I, okay. you well, know, I, I sort of. God, what was that? I, I did it. Um, it just wasn't a very interesting story. Right. Um, but the the whole casting thing yeah. is um, stands and falls with how much you buy into it. It doesn't matter. The problem is that Lenny Henry is not a very good actor. Yeah. He's terrible. Yeah, so you know you can just say, oh, maybe you shouldn't play this character. You shouldn't play any character. You shouldn't, yeah. you shouldn't play. You shouldn't act. So that's us slamming diversity. Yeah, yeah. This is <laughs> no, it's specifically Lenny Harry. Yeah. Shouldn't, shouldn't, no. Yeah, that's us slamming. You take it as high as. Great. So, um, Malix, what are you uh, particularly looking forward to in in twenty twenty three? Are there any are there any sort of upcoming uh, upcoming features that are particularly exciting you, or do you have any kind of predictions about any trends that we've seen in this first kind of proper post pandemic year of twenty twenty two? Are they going to be exaggerated this year? You know, give our listeners a kind of uh, a roadmap to the to the coming year of cinema. Um, but there have been some good trailers out, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, of course, the Barbie movie <laughs> with Margot Robbie and uh, oh, what's the name? Um, oh yeah, um, Ryan Gosling. Yeah, one of the Ryans. Um, yeah, directed that, by Greta Gerwig. Yeah, that looks quite good fun. The trailer is very good. It's very funny. Okay, can I, I, I? This is something which I'm just completely perplexed by because everyone's talking about it. Lots of dudes my age. Who around that? Mind? Who are just like obsessed with this film? And I, I get. And what was explained to me is that it's endlessly memeable. You know, the the kind of um, stills that they've they've given and and just pictures and promotional stuff. And okay, I get that the memeable aspect. But people are like, I've seen memes about people being very excited um, about. And it's, like, there's this meme I think I even saw with like Tony Soprano complaining that like, um, I, you know, I, there are girls here to see Barbie 2023, what's going on sort of thing. Um, so like there's a genuine enthusiasm and I don't get it. I, well, what is the, why? I think in, in terms of performance, everybody likes Margot Robbie. She can't put a foot wrong. I don't think. And she's she like, is definitely a, I think a breakthrough star. Yeah. She, she's going to be big next year. Really in terms big. of trends. Yeah. More Margot Robbie. Yeah. She, you know, she's already probably one of the biggest Hollywood stars at the moment. She's going to be huge. Um, and also I have to say technically a very good actress as well. Not just we a star. Like, she's really watchable. I yeah. like her. Yeah. Um, oh, then, then there's another good, f- well, I don't know if it's going to be good, but I'm looking forward to it. It's a new, it's a new Renfield movie with, uh, Ed Schwartz. Is Ben Schwartz in it? Yeah. Oh, but he's Renfield. I thought it was um, Nicholas Holt. Oh, okay, maybe. Either way, <laughs> because we, we because we love Nicholas Holt um, as, as a performer. 
I'm looking forward to uh, another Margot Robbie movie, Babylon. <laughs> this is this is ridiculous. Well, it's just because you know Holly, the one thing that Hollywood can still do is tell stories about itself. Yeah. So self mythologizing is going to be really interesting. Well, this is what we were thinking that you know because it is being pushed so hard in the kind of awards circus, the Babylon film, because. You know, there is still that thing about Hollywood that it does really well and is that self-mythologizing. And I think that pinning a lot of hopes on Babylon as a kind of, you know, war story of uh, Hollywood. War story. Yeah. So so that's going to be best picture? I mean, is it coming out before the Oscars? Presumably they're, they're timing it so that it can... They're really plugging this in the kind of, uh, for, your consider- you know, for your consideration season, you know, they're really pushing this thing. Um, so it's going to be definitely nominated, I'm quite sure. Any sort of, any sort of wider, wider trends that we can, we can discern? No. I mean, I, I, I do want to make the, the point, I know it's a pretty kind of trite one at this, at this point, but just like the number of sequels and just like everything is a superhero film. I think it, it does bear some commentary uh, on. I did go back and watch the uh, original, like I episodes four, five, six of, of Star Wars and just think, you know, everything is becoming a, a Star War now and or the Obi-Wan Kenobi. I mean, these are TV, but the TV kind of and film boundary is is pretty, pretty porous. I mean, it's, you know, Disney have a massive amount of, of sway they have all they have a lot of ip they're going to be churning out these um these marvel films in phase five or whatever it is i don't know they have some like super plan of like a, a trillion marvel films but i mean am i just being uh, a kind of quite basic analyst saying like oh I'm, i've seen so i've seen this film before i don't want to see a sequel i mean is there anything like more um you know at the, the scale of what hollywood's producing as a whole that we can expect i think so because I, you know if i even sound like a boring marketing person the idea of sequels makes absolute sense because they guarantee a real good income for the studio over years and years in a very very unpredictable market right only with the money that they make from predictable things like sequels then they can afford to, you know, venture out in really bizarre stuff and uh, spend money on weird items uh, and single projects. So I think there is a there's a there's a good logic behind these sequels because they are a step, you know, a predictable income for studios. It's the classic kind of one for them, one for us, but like half a dozen for them and then one for us. Yeah, I think this is. I mean, you know. it does it does work to a certain extent. I I went to see the the Matrix resurrections or whatever it was the, the most recent one and it was absolutely terrible um and yeah but they got my you know they got my money um the next one's so, going to be the, the fourth rendition of john wick it's well there you go keanu still you know still gets work um so i guess one thing though that you know was a little bit discernible in um some of the prestige tv and films um, in of 2020 was this kind of, you know, I mean, it was the second season of White Lotus, but you could say this kind of eat the rich turn to to some kind of social criticism. So you might talk about White Lotus, Triangle of Sadness, The Menu. We've mentioned all of these, all these th- these films already. Um, what did you What did you make of this? I, I know it's it's been uh, these 
in the films and, and the TV show have been the subject of a lot of uh, a lot of words. Uh, I was going to say ink spilled, but it's not anymore. A lot of words on on uh, on MacBooks um, <laughs> put into the the ether via, via various publications. What did you guys make of it? I'm not too convinced by this trend. I must say. What do you find not convincing? Um, there is a. I mean, it started sort of as parasite, doesn't, didn't it? Like, um, and the the kind of trend of, you know, rich people getting it. You know, it's always getting it, and it's it seems to be always very nihilistic. There's, you know, it's not the new awakening of a socialist conscious. <laughs> I don't think so. It's, it's. I think a, a kind of middle class fear of. Yeah, of turmoil, of turmoil and destitution. I mean, there's no, um, it's not a coincidence that it sort of started with the kind of Brexit vote, Trumpism coming in, and suddenly there's a kind of middle class panic about you know rich people accessing or something like this. I think, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, bourgeois panic, people, bourgeois panic. Yeah, they, they don't know where they are in the world anymore. Right? Yeah, and uh, they're they're afraid of the kind of yeah. They're afraid of everything. <laughs> and you can see that the, all these films are terribly nihilistic. You know, they all end up with, uh, you know, not with a revolution, but with death and chaos. I think specifically, though, I really like the menu for what it's worth. I think it was a very good film. Yeah. And Nicholas Holt, in it. <laughs> that was one of my favorite performances of the year, as it happens. I think, he was you know, good. He was, I think he made a, an absolutely despicable human being very sympathetic. And well if cast. I was, yeah. And also, you know, if I was that age, I would have either hated him or loved him because I could see a lot of myself in that character, that panic. Yeah. That is- he plays the um, he plays the foodie, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so, some of my co-hosts might not have realized that he was supposed to be an unsympathetic character, but uh, let me break it to you. Yes, he was. So, um, but yeah, my, my, Alex or Phil, what, actually, let's, let's go to you first, Phil. What are you looking forward to in... Uh, 2023 more eat the rich things or or you know what's what's on your radar i so uh, malik's already mentioned babylon um i'm looking forward to babylon i'm curious to see how they uh you know how they kind of uh, render i guess that kind of um era of hollywood glory and excess and it looks you know i mean it looks like a good movie um i'm in two minds about empire of light uh which is um the movie with Olivia Coleman. It's uh, there's a local connection which kind of intrigues me. So it's set in the coastal town in the 1980s, and it's about you know the magic of cinema and what have you. Um, but it's was filmed here in Kent in Margate, which is the kind of classic, uh, one of the classic kind of rundown, nearly gentrifying, poor coastal communities. And so I'm curious. I'm to be honest, I'm just curious solely about that connection, how that kind of um, is rendered in cinema, I guess. And then I so I'm not really looking forward to much. The only thing I could say with a kind of um, clean conscience that I'm looking forward to is June, uh, the second part, because um, I thought the first part was decent. I'm still I feel I still think the David Lynch version is superior, not only for it's the not. fact that it included a pun, <laughs> but <laughs> but also because it is just I think a kind of a more um, a more ambitious and strange film. Um, so, but anyway, notwithstanding that, I'm looking forward to the second uh, part of June as far as movies go this year. Well, it's going to be a big, big year for Timothy Chalamet as well. Yeah, it will. Yeah, He's indeed. Yeah, play another Willy Wonka. 
that's true. Yes. Yes. Willy, what, yeah, he's, he's got the weirdness. But he could he could play either Charlie or Willy Wonka. I think he's too. <laughs> Maybe in the middle. he should play place both. He should play. Yeah, both. that would be a um, a good a good take on it. Um, Alex, on what the, about you? What, what's what's I was your? Going to say there about oh, Eat the Rich. More. Uh, well, no, okay. I don't have right. any more recommendations, but I was going to pitch in about Eat the Rich. Unless you want to hear Alex's uh, looking forward to first. Yeah, Alex, what are you looking forward to? And then we can all we can all discuss well, eating the rich. I mean, I think specifically, I think Babylon. I'm curious about. I'm I like Damien Chazelle's films, even though they're all about perseverance and jazz. Um, one or two of, the, or, and very often both of them. Um, even his space film is about jazz. Um, I think ultimately. Um, so I, I, you know, I I think the the subject matter is probably. Maybe not so interesting, but I think he, his films are always kind of so vibrant that are they may, are they worth watching? Um, I think Yorgos Lantimos will have two, one or two films out uh, this year. One with Emma Stone, which I'm not that I think she's a, a fantastic actor, but I think it worked very well in in the favorite. So I'm curious to see um, what he does there. And then just more generally, I think 2023 would be the first year that there would really be films that would reflect on the. Uh, the pandemic, not necessarily in direct sense, but that it it's just because of this lag, the number, the amount of time it takes to write and make a movie, the pandemic experience of 2020, 2021, I think would only materialize, um, you know, the, the kind of crystallization of that experience would only materialize in 2023. So I'm interested to, to look at film in 2023 um, through that lens. No, I think that's a really good point that you have the, the initial reaction. I mean, there were some films I remember with like a particularly low budget Zoom uh, based thriller, which um, you know very very of its of its time and you know pandemic y. But yeah, I guess that it does take a while for the you know for the true reflection to to kind of percolate through. I mean, from for my part, I'm I guess I've got a quite a low level of expectation. Like looking at what's coming out in 2023, it doesn't really excite me. It's it's yeah. I mean, maybe it's June the second, but that's like it's a remake of it's the second part of a remake and it's like and i do think it's the first part showed it to be better than the the lynch but it's like yeah here's a story have heard before i would like to be surprised by something that i just wasn't on my radar at all you know go into the cinema and think that is an entirely new story or oh yeah actually it is kind of cool to go to the cinema again so that's what i'm hoping i mean pretty big expectation for uh, any director to fulfill to kind of you know produce something of that that quality um but yeah on the on the kind of eat the rich social well, I did, just before that ah, there on. was one well i've had seen one movie already it's very early days um to say it's my favorite movie of 2023 obviously but it is a good movie i wanted to give it a shout out which is um peter peter von kant by um francois Ozon. um and though i'm not like i have kind of um I'm a Philistine enough to have ambivalent feelings about European or should I say continental cinema. Um, that so often when I see it, it always, you know, frequently it seems to me kind of um, pretentious and irritating. Um, and I have kind of mixed feelings about Ozon as a director, but this it's actually, I think, a fantastic movie. There's a backstory to um, the movie, a movie by the German director Fassbender that he's kind of riffing off, which I'm only familiar, I've not seen um, the Petra von Kant original. Anyway, I don't want to get too much into the detail except to give it a shout out. It's a good movie. It's a very adult film, and it reminded me watching it 
um, how kind of uh, how rare it is to see a very um, adult depiction of people's relationships, um, their private kind of their intimate relationships. And I just realized how rare it is to see it on the cinema. That does remind me, apropos pretentious. The other thing I'm curious about is Tar, which is the Kate Blanchett uh, plays a conductor movie, which I think is out everywhere at the moment except the UK, which is very frustrating. But I think. Thanks, Brexit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we Brexited from Kate Blanchett movies. Yeah. But I am curious to see uh, what is. It looks superficially like it's a defensive art for, for its own sake. But it could also be terrible. So yeah, it's very hard to judge just off the trailer. Yeah, you you have to see it. Yeah. To, what I'm really curious about in terms of performance is the new Indiana Jones film, because you know there are youngifying Harrison Ford True. in the with the digital mask. So in terms of performance, I'm really curious what that does and how this works and what it does in terms of meaning and storytelling. That's going to be I'm, cu- I'm just curious. Is this, will this be the first film where it's been the the kind of the main character has been youngified? Because they did it to... No, it's the one with, with Al Pacino in the Netflix movie. The Irishman. The Irishman. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would still remember the Crystal Skulls film, so I'm, I can't get too, too jazzed up about <laughs> Indiana Jones. And um, Mission Impossible but... as well, which are the good James Bond movies. Don't watch James Bond movies, watch Mission Impossible movies. Cool. So just to just to kind of round things out a little bit, to come back to this this point, I guess, about around, you know, eat the rich, social satire, um, White Lotus particularly, Alex H, this is you. Um did a did a piece on the on the first season of this how did you what did you make of the second one compared to to the first um season of white lotus i mean it's worth noting that the first one was only made because they needed to make effectively like a bottle series during the pandemic and it was only renewed because of its popularity um and it seems to be hugely popular the second one um i think the first one they was set up in such a way that the characters each landed such good blows on each other that it made it really rewarding watching. And it wasn't just let's watch these rich people get fucked up um, because it did expose the characters quite well. So you have this kind of Hillary Clinton like kind of or uh, Sheryl Sandberg like mom, you know, calling out the the woke daughters. But at the same time, she gets exposed as just being a horrible person, too. But it, it did it in a quite neat way. Whereas season two is perfectly enjoyable. But actually, you can spend a lot. You can spend time with those characters in a way, I think, that you wouldn't want to with the fir- in the first series. Right. You can hang out with the characters. They're probably pretty despicable, but like kind of not not so um, cringe inducing, I think, in the way that the characters in the first season are. Ultimately, the second season ends up being a kind of, uh, it's just kind of a bit in its comfort zone. And it's about relationships. And it's kind of quite good, I think, in portraying some of the awkwardness about modern relationships. But that's about it. I think as satire, it, it 
it's not that any it doesn't work anymore as satire I, I think not and not just because it's already been done once it was done in season one but um because it doesn't try to develop any real new themes in terms of even just trying to do the usual satire of the bourgeoisie which to be honest since um since the 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 um the uh, the Buñuel film, what's it called? From like the fifties, the discreet the charm, discreet of the charm of the bourgeoisie. Everything feels like a little bit of a repeat of that. So you know, I, I don't but know how I, much. How, how about this is a kind of counter to that? So I think it doesn't try to be kind of satirical in the same way as the first season. But is it kind of therefore more effective because it's you know it's just saying here are the pathologies of this class of people within their relationships. It's not like look at all of these kind of contradictions within their um the way that they act and their kind of economic position it's just saying like here are the um here's a critique sort of, of but but ironically yeah. doesn't really work as well as a portrayal of the elite because it then the 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 character of those relationships is probably a facet of a much wider swathe of society not society as as a whole but you know kind of very middling elements, lower middle class, even whatever. Um, so I don't think it's such a, I don't think it's such a, like it's it's not as it's not as biting for that reason, right? Um, it becomes a bit more sociological, right? Like oh look mm. how, look at what we are like nowadays, rather than look at what how this class behaves. Yeah, um, Malik, you you said uh, the menu was a, a a film that you you particularly liked last year. Do you think this works as a, I mean, it's difficult to discuss it without giving away the ending. So spoiler alert, it's potentially for listeners, but do you think it kind of works? Because I watched this in preparation for recording, watched it last night and I, yeah, I'm not sure. I just, I'm not sure it kind of, what exactly the point it was, it was making. Um, So yeah, I'm I'm interested to hear how like whether you think it it was successful as a bit a bit of satire as a film, um, performances from um, from Fines or from uh, Anna Taylor Joy, you know what what was your take on this? Yeah, Um, I know what you mean. I think it doesn't quite know what it is itself. So I, I share your ambivalence about that from a kind of satirical point of view. But I think what it describes very well is is that sense of disorientation, social disorientation. Um, it is it's a it's a it's a bourgeois panic movie in the way that all of the other Eat the Rich movies are at the moment. Um, I think it, what what elevates it is the performances. I think so. Some very good, very clever casting. I think. Um, Anya Taylor-Joy is a very, she's another up and coming star without a doubt. She's a new archetype of person, a new archetype of, you know, um, actor who's fulfilling new kinds of roles. She has this very peculiar face and it really is that straightforward. She's, she's very good at emoting, but on top of that, she has this weird geometry. Well, what what is interesting about Anna Taylor-Joy is, as you say, she creates a new archetype of female character that we have not seen before and it's just evolving and it's very hard to pin down at the moment but it's nothing that we have seen before we can put in a um in a category so maybe we can talk about it in five five years time or something about who who that person is but it's very of the moment so i thought that was and and casting her in this 
um, as, as you say, of the moment film in which the bourgeoisie doesn't know. They're, they're let's say, literally headless at the end. Big spoiler. <laughs> Big spoiler. Right? Um, in that, you know, they are complicit in their own destruction and uh, willing, uh, willing participants in their own destruction because they don't know, you know, how to get out of their own predicaments. And it's ah, fantastic. I'd, I'd go, I think I'd go a bit further. It's, I think it's because they, they buy into um, the chef's critique of them themselves. You know, at some level they accept it um, and they kind of buy into it. And this is what makes them essentially, um, you know, uh, and even at the end, and again, the spoiler alert, you know, they thank him for this kind of, for the, um, the nihilistic kind of, uh, act of uh, the orgy of kind of self-destruction at the end they participate and so i think you know it is kind of nihilistic and so I agree with you to that extent marin but i think you know the nihilism is also part of what's being criticized and um portrayed as well and i so i mean the reason i like the menu um so much was just because i thought it was it was so tense you know it was kind of well t- it was really tense it was well shot and i thought the um the digs at the kind of um haute cuisine foodie culture it even reminded me of somebody who i know quite well uh current you know he lives in latin america normally travels quite a lot but the digs at that kind of um foodie culture i thought were really well made you know um so even though you know like i don't it's i'm not can you know as far it's it's hard to kind of fit it into a sophisticated political frame, but I thought it was a good a good movie. And I'd agree with you about The White Lotus, I think, Alex, um, Alex H., and also with Malik's about uh, Triangle of Sadness and White Lotus. I think the strongest parts of those play of those kinds of critiques are in the at the edges in a way. You know, so kind of what struck me about Triangle of Sadness was the um you know, it was the best part of it. So the politics, you know, was kind of terrible in the slang slagging match between the Russian oligarch and the supposedly socialist captain of the ship where played by Woody Harrelson, where they're just quoting, you know, these um, Ronald Reagan and Lenin at each other completely out of context <laughs> and with no real kind of, you know, sense. Or it was a brilliant behind. satire of Twitter. That's what it was. Maybe. I mean, you know, I didn't I didn't see it like that as the time. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe there was that. I don't think it was. But I thought what was really, you know, what was good about it was the kind of the sly, the more subtle and sly aspects of it. So it seemed to me like the last part where they are on the island is like it's a critique of matriarchy. You know, when um, it's a woman who takes over to kind of uh, run the survivors on the island. Um, and there's this bitter, intense competition uh, breaks out effectively towards the end between the women over the young handsome guy. So I thought it was that was you know I thought the best part of it. And similarly with um, you know the best part of uh, I think uh, the of Lotus White Lotus season one and two is the critique of the woke. You know the critique of the two horrible woke um, the two horrible woke girls in the first one and the um, this kind of shallow manipulative but ultimately nice guy the son ab is what's his name is it um albie albie that's it in um in uh season two so i enjoyed them because i thought they were good you know they had good characterization and around the edges i thought they were doing more kind of 
they were doing more than they let on, I thought, you know, so the kind of the satire and the eat the rich kind of thing was how they kind of fronted themselves. But I thought there was more going on to the films, which um, actually made them better. I had a more fanciful reading of the menu, which was that it wasn't specifically about cooking, but it could also be about cultural production more generally or film even. Yeah. We thought it was about film. So yeah. what, what the chef is, is Hollywood. And he wants to reconnect. He wants to be asked to be reconnected with his audience. Sorry, did did you say that the the chef was Paul Hollywood? <laughs> That's a very British joke. Yeah. I mean, listen, yes, and it shouldn't shouldn't have interrupted. Apologies, Alex. That's all right. You just want to make a savvy bottom joke or something. <laughs> no, I. But I. What I was trying to. Uh, what I was getting at was there. Um, I think. Um, Hollywood wants to be asked to make something meaningful in the way that the chef wants to be asked to, to reconnect with something that he finds meaningful. Cultural production, right? So but the thing is that the food stands in for, for culture in general. Yeah. So what producers of culture want to do is create something meaningful for everybody. That what, they appreciate. What, what they appreciate. What they seem to be being asked is to create something for you know the in elite something ludicrous something ludicrous that only they enjoy maybe this is my fanciful take but that's how i that's how i read it as well well that's a film of many facets yeah, yeah. so i think that's a good a good place to to leave it the, the reading a film and saying it's really about film that's um that's a pretty good film criticism trick actually i think uh, as, as far as i understand it <laughs> wow. um but no th thank you very much marin and alex and yeah we will we, definitely include a link to the performance anxiety podcast um what have you got episodes coming up on to give you another chance to, to plug I definitely do the uh, avatar way of water because even even though you are very inclined to hate it give it a chance in terms of performance because i think i'm making a very good case for it uh, and future episodes, um, uh, don't know. We'll definitely do Babylon when that comes out. Yeah. W what we're trying to do is is the, the things that everybody is actually talking about. So it's not necessarily stuff that we might want to watch ourselves. No. Out of choice. It's more <laughs> out of a sense of duty because everyone has... But you'll, you'll suffer for the art of... Um, to produce meaningful art for the for your yes. your listeners. Yeah, that's this. That's us throwing us ourselves on the grenade. For people. <laughs> of culture. Of culture. Grenade culture. Grenade culture.